my father-in-law has a saying. I love it. I repeat it to my children. He says, you can do anything you want, but you can't do everything you want. There's always an opportunity cost and a trade-off for the things that you do or don't do. Welcome to Thrive in the Future podcast, positive solutions to help you thrive, designing your intentional life, homesteading, gardening, and rediscovering culture and tradition. Join our thriving community. It's where our community shares our positive solutions, our wins and our losses. Join at signup.thriveinthefuture.com. It's been a great year at grownuttrees.com. I've sold over 60 chestnut trees, but I still have a few left. I also have elderberry left and now elderberry cuttings and comfrey crowns. Check it out at grownuttrees.com. Okay, welcome back to Thrive in the Future. This week, I have John Sutton of the Sutton Homestead with me. John, how's it going? Good, Scott. Thanks for having me. I appreciate it. You bet. So tell us a little bit about your homestead over there in Idaho. Yeah, we're about 10 years old now. We moved out here in 2013. And I will tell you, it's been a journey of ups and downs, and there's been a lot of learning. Um, So I'm here, hopefully, to share some of my failures with people and also (laughs) some of my successes. Um, And then just, you know, talk about some of the rewards and benefits that this lifestyle brings. That's awesome. I'm glad that you mentioned the the failure because failure is an option. We'll get we'll get to that. So uh, so how big is your your homestead? What is your cornerstone crop? Yeah, we have about uh, seven point six acres altogether. Mm-hmm. Um, so when you take away the house and the yard, you know you're probably closer to about uh, six and a half. Um, we also have a seasonal pond that comes in, and ironically, you think that the ponds come in in springtime when the snow melt. It doesn't. It it fills up um, from an aquifer uh, in the fall. So, yeah. So, so usually what happens is we're nice and dry and we got a lot more grazing land um, and planting land in the springtime. But by fall, um, I don't even have to put water out for the cows. They'll just go drink out of the pond. So that that's kind of nice. So uh, depending on the time of year, I would say anywhere from probably about five to six and a half acres of usable land, um, either for grazing for livestock or for, for our garden. That's cool. What kind of livestock do you have? Um, we started out with a number of birds. So this is one of the failures. And one of the things I'm going to caution your audience with is, is, you know, there's a lot of great ideas out there and everything sounds awesome. But the truth of the matter is you can't do everything. My father-in-law has a saying. I love it. I repeat it to my children. He says, you can do anything you want, but you can't do everything you want. There's always an opportunity cost and a trade-off for the things that you do or don't do. Um, when we first started, let's start with birds, for example, Um, We wanted eggs, so we got chickens. Um, And we wanted turkey, so we got turkey. And we wanted ducks, so we got ducks. And we wanted geese, so we got geese. And now here we are 10 years later, and all we have are chickens for the eggs. Um, A lot of ups and downs there. Um, The other thing that we do every year is we get a few cows, a couple of cows, anywhere from I've had as few as two. uh, I've had as many as seven. Now, when I've had two, we always want at least two because animals eat in competition and they're also social. So you want to make sure that they have companionship. Um, an animal by itself will get depressed. So the story of Jack and the Beanstalk with the one cow, well, no wonder he took him to market. He probably wasn't giving him much milk. Um, <laughs> not only that, you know, animals eat in competition. If one animal is eating, the other animal is going to eat and they're going to compete to see who eats more. So it helps fatten them up quicker. That's huh. one of the things we learned. When we've had a larger herd, they were smaller breeds. So we had a neighbor one time who rented our pasture 
Um, and in exchange, you know, we got a couple cows at the end of the year out of it. Um, but he had a small Australian breed. So they were a little bit smaller than your typical Angus or something like that. So um, the pasture was able to handle it. Later in the year, we saw some some pressure being put on the pasture, um, mostly from thistle. And the reason being is in the 10 years we've been out here, we haven't sprayed at all. One of the things we've really wanted to do was um, go pesticide free. We're not certified organic, but we grow in such a way that we could probably be certified organic. Um, so the problem there is, you know, the thistle will creep in the different weeds and things like that. So um, tried a number of different solutions there had the neighborhood kids out to dig up thistles and pull them. Um, that helps a little bit, but you know, at some point there's so many of them, they just can't keep up. The mm -hmm. best way that I've come up with for control of thistle and other invasive plants, especially when it comes to livestock management is pasture rotation. Um, ideally, you know, you want to have very small plots fenced in and you want to move your herd from one plot to the other, almost on a daily basis where they consume everything in that plot and they're in strict competition with each other. But that's not really practical. First of all, I don't have that many plots fenced off. You know, I have, you know, three or four main pastures. Secondly, I don't have that large of a herd. So what I do instead is I move them generally every month. And when I remove them, what I'll do is I'll mow it. I'll mow it at about three or four inches tall. It will cut off all the weeds. It will prevent them from going to seed. And I find that um, mowing it and preventing the seed from spreading, over time, those thistles will die out um, and you'll be left with more grass. The other thing that's on my list for next year is to get some sort of rake or a harrow and really do some... Uh, um, some pasture maintenance and as well as planting seed each year. So hopefully you can crowd out those invasive species with just the grass and the desirable grasses that you want for livestock raising. So that's really what we've done um, over the course of our time here. Um, we have rented out our pastures. Um, my neighbor who had the smaller Australian breed cattle um, brings a sheep over. We love that. The girls love it. They're gentle. They love to play with them. But more importantly, the sheep will eat weeds. They don't eat the thistles, but they eat some of the other weeds. So it's really? a real good natural form of weed control. Yeah. I'm not sure if you're aware of this, Scott, but there are companies out there that you can rent a herd of goats and yep. have them come through. And they will, you know, eat a lot of the undesirable plants in there. So, mm -hmm. um, you know, my wife wants goats. I tell her no. And she begs me for goats. And I say, I'll tell you what, go over to our friends or, you know, they live about an hour away. They have goats. I said, clean out their pen a couple of times and tell me if you want goats, because I just don't have the capacity to, to do it for you. So that's that's our deal right there. So, again, it's it's learning that lesson of not butting off more than you can chew. So primarily when we started out, you know, like I said, we had a variety of different birds. Um, and now we're down to chickens because we strictly want the eggs. We had uh, cows. We still do that every year. You know, we like to bring in a couple cows. Um, over COVID, it was tough to get a butcher spot for the cows. So now what I have is I have spots reserved two or three years out. Um, and what you want to do is what we want to do anyways, is we don't want to have to go out in the middle of winter and crack ice. You can buy a heater. You still got to crack the ice around it. You still got to fill it up. Um, we have the hydrants that are designed to drain underground, but unless you have some sort of heated hose system or take the hose off and bring it inside every day, the hose is going to ice up. So even if you can get the water, the flow, it's, it's still not going to flow through the hose very well. Mm -hmm. So practically speaking, we end up hauling buckets out to the troughs and filling it up. 
um, or we have to buy hay and feed the cows because it's snow covered in the pastures in the winter. So what we've come to the conclusion is we either buy a yearling or one that's about two and a half years old, uh, two years old every spring. And by the time we send them off in the fall, they're anywhere from a year and a half to two and a half years old. And they graze for free. We fill the troughs with water every day so they have fresh water to drink. As I mentioned earlier, by the time it gets to the fall, they can drink right out of the pond. Um, and they do a pretty good job if I just move them from pasture to pasture month to month um, of keeping that grass down. A month wow. is usually about, yeah, a month is usually about enough time to give it a nice mow and, and cut any weeds that have sprung up because they will eat around the weeds. And by the time I move them in a month later, it's, you know, if you cut it at three and a half or four inches, it's a good, you know, six inches or so, um, you know, because we water pretty frequently and um, it gives them some nice grazing without being too long. They don't like to graze off the, the grass that's ready to go to seed. So that's, hmm. uh, that's what we do there. Um, if you want the most bang for your buck, um, livestock is the way to go. It's much lower effort. They consume much more than natural resources, whether you're free ranging chickens, whether you're pasture feeding your beef, uh, or sheep or goats or whatever it is. And you don't have to weed livestock. You don't have to harvest livestock. You know, it's one day when you send them off to the butcher or whatever it is that you do, um, yeah. as opposed to a garden, which is day by day, week by week upkeep. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So the, you were talking about hauling buckets out. My wife has a hose that has electric woven into it. Yep. So then, uh, so then we use that and then it doesn't, it doesn't freeze. It's heavy as heck, but you know, and, uh, so you know, that's what she uses to fill stuff up. We're we're a little bit colder than you. We're in zone five. Right. And uh, we, what we found is we did get one of those hoses um, off the big A delivery company and uh, didn't really work out too well for us. Really? So um, we still, yeah, we still had problems with it um, and things like that. One of the issues that we had was even having electricity in close proximity to the hose because the the cord on that isn't very long so then you end up getting an outdoor extension cord to heat the hose and things like mm -hmm. that so um for us it, you know two to four buckets a day throw them in a wheelbarrow you know haul them out there it wasn't that far it was almost easier that way than just trying to deal with you know hauling the hose the extra expense of the electricity things like that yeah our big problem is that the the electric for the chicken house and that that hose are hooked into the same circuit for some reason as the freezer. So there's been a couple times where they've tripped the ground fault and then uh, I didn't know it. And then the freezer defrosted and we lost meat. So no, no, that's, that's a nightmare right there. Yeah. And then when you have to get the, well, and then freezers nowadays are self-contained. They've got little teeny tiny, um, you know, copper, pipes in them that are not accessible. So they're, they're planned obsolescence. And so you know, I'm, I'm lucky if I get two or three years out of a freezer nowadays. Oh, don't, don't get me started on planned obsolescence. If I could go back in time, the one guy I'd smack is Brooke Stevens. But anyways, that's besides the point. <laughs> <laughs> that's funny. So you said you're in zone five, a, uh, I zone five. I'm not sure for a or B, but yeah, we, well, and the one thing to keep in mind with zones, right, is it's the average first right. freeze and the average last freeze. I mean, 
you know, anecdotally speaking, right. We've had uh, frost as late as June and really? yeah. Um, early June, we had a crop one year of uh, when we first came out, we planted some cherry, cherry trees. And we'll talk about the orchard a little bit later and full blossom looks beautiful. Expecting a big crop, you know, a day later, they're all dead. So yeah. um, it, it, it just happens. And uh, we have uh, our Eastern Idaho state fair out here. Um, the first week of September every year. And that's pretty much our indicator that we need to have most things above ground harvested because um, it's not uncommon to get a frost sometime during fair week, even if it's 75, 80, 90 degrees sometimes during the day. Um, The interesting thing about being in high desert is we'll drop 50 degrees, right? So, you know, we can go from 85 to 35. And if you, you know, we're in a little microclimate outside of town, we're typically two or three degrees cooler even. So um, mm-hmm. there are some things that we can do as far as for road covers and different things to extend the season. But, you know, at the end of the day, we we don't do a lot of different crops during the year, at least on a lot of different cycles. Um, we, uh, you know, we pretty much plan on one growing season. We'll start everything indoors, usually sometime after Valentine's Day. We got racks, we got lights, things like that. We typically right. don't put things out until the middle of May or, you know, that sort of thing. Um, and then even then, it's not uncommon for us to have to cover things up, um, you know, in the later, latter part of May um, on some of the uh, above ground crops, you know, things that go underground, not a big deal. Greens are pretty frost tolerant, things like that, not a big deal. But, you know, you put a nice tomato plant out there in the middle of May and all of a sudden you get a, a frost, you know, the third week of May. You're going to want to cover that up and, you know, before you before you lose it. Yeah. Yeah. We've had uh, we've had late frost into May three times in the last four years. And uh, so, yeah, we had, I had apples with apples on only one side of the tree because it froze the, it was just right at the right temperature to freeze off the blossoms on the other side of the tree. And uh, the, the chestnut farm in town and the nursery where I usually get most of my apple trees from, they were, they were froze out. So I managed to get uh, chest, chestnuts from my usual spot because they were sheltered from the north side. But yeah, the the farm in town was in a low low spot, so they got they got blasted. Yeah, and and that's why you know I have an aunt who refers to farming as legalized gambling. They were farmers for many many <laughs> years, and that's exactly what it is. So when you say what's the biggest bang for your buck, right? Well, guess what? If it gets down to thirty degrees, the cows aren't going to mind. Um, the chickens aren't going to mind, you know, provided that they've reached a mature age, you know, they got feathers, they got a coop to go into. You can throw a heat lamp in there. Um, simple stuff really. Right. Um, mm-hmm. But with gardening, you're out there, you're hauling the truck out or the garden cart behind your lawnmower. You have sheets, you have blankets, you have plastic, you have road covers or whatever it is that you're using. And, you know, if you have any garden of any size, it takes a lot to cover that up. Um, you know, so we don't have a high tunnel or anything like that. So for us, it's just all in ground outdoor gardening. That's what's worked the best for us over the years. Um, so when the cold comes, we have to protect the crop or else we have to be prepared to lose it. Yeah. That's a lot of row cover then. Yeah. Um, (laughs) our garden right now, um, we have several different ones. We have a kitchen garden that was there when we got here. And of course, along the side of the house, we have these, uh, beds. There's a couple elevated beds on three sides. Um, or sorry, three beds on two sides and two lower beds. So we have about, uh, I want to say we have about six beds 
um, that we can work with in the backyard. Typically in the backyard, it's, it's shade, right? So we use that for herbs. We use that for perennials. We use that for greens. We use that for garlic, things like that. Um, where it's close to the house and we can keep an eye on it. Um, the kitchen garden does a little bit better. It gets a little bit more sun. We've actually decided to turn that into a berry patch. So we're doing raspberries, blackberries, black raspberries, things like that. Really? Um, yeah, in part because um, one of the problems that we have is our chickens get out of the coop and chickens love gardens, right? So mm -hmm. um, with the berries, at least, they tend to grow a little higher and the fruit's a little higher. So the chickens are almost beneficial. They'll come through, they'll scrape at the ground, they'll, you know, fertilize the ground underneath it um, and really not take a lot of the fruit. Whereas when we had our berry bushes out in the pasture, um, had a lot of problems with birds, you know, we would, you know, have currant bushes or raspberry bushes or strawberry plants or things like that, that we would hardly see any fruit off of because, you know, we're watching them come in and then as soon as they turn red, they're gone. So mm -hmm. you're always at war with, with the, with the local wildlife that's coming in into your, into your garden as well. So again, you know, there's not a lot of predators on cows. Um, uh, <laughs> there's predators, there's, there's predators on chickens, right? One of the things yeah. I found that's really effective is I got some electrified poultry netting. So we have at the end of our yard, we have a chain link fenced in coop. Here's another lessons learned. If you're going to do that, make sure you bury that coop a good eight to 12 inches, that fence, that fence line. Yeah. Um, get the taller poles, get the taller fence because the chickens can hop over it and they will dig underneath it. Right. So mm -hmm. what we've done is to the back of that chicken run facing the pasture is I put electrified poultry wire. Um, and that does a really good job because then I open the gate to the pasture, they can go out. Now, what I've had to do is that poultry wire tends to sag. So I was really frustrated with this when I first got it. And the advice that I was given when I called the company is use T-post. So you drive T-post into the ground at the corners along the long sides and things like that, and then cover them with PVC because obviously mm. you don't want your electric electrified post touching metal T-posts. Right. Um, since then, I've zip tied it. It's been in place for, well, it's been a year. I haven't had one broken zip tie. I haven't had to do any repairs on it. And even if I do, right, it's just going to be bailing twine or something to keep those posts in place. Um, but the the solar receptor on the battery works great. It keeps it charged up. I get about uh, 11 to 14 volts. So it's enough to scare away small predators. It's enough that when the chickens first discover it, it keeps them in. They, they don't really go out that much. Um, but the flip side to that is my backyard is virtually... Um, uh, a chicken run in and of itself because they'll come out of where the coop is at night and um, they'll come out during the day and they'll basically take over the backyard, the garden area, the long driveway, anything that they can get in and out of the fences or over the fences. But the good news is, is since we've done this, we've been able to keep a lot of them. Uh, another thing that we've done that has failed, and then I'll tell you what's worked, <laughs> is we got geese. Um when we first got geese, we thought it'd be great to do Christmas uh, Christmas geese. And if you've ever plucked one, you'll never pluck one again. I'll tell you that. So yep. um, we, we don't do that anymore. But I also read that they make good guard animals. And the Romans actually use them as guard animals because they're better at distinguishing between common sounds versus uh, unusual sounds at night, predators and things like that. Mm -hmm. The problem with that was every time we put in a new batch of chickens to expand our flock, 
the geese would honk at them and chase them away. So for about a year, year and a half, we could not get our flock to grow. Wow. So finally, we got rid of the geese and we have the electrified fence. And now we have a booming flock. Um, we have about 20 layers at any given time, a couple of roosters. Um, we got in a guinea hen. They make this high-pitched crackling noise, but they're not very intimidating to the chickens, especially if they're raised with the chickens. Mm -hmm. So you still get the alert of predators and the scare off the predator function without necessarily scaring the chickens. And now we're just at the point where we have a, we have a gentleman a little bit north of us who raises chickens. You walk into his barn and he's got them four weeks, six weeks, eight weeks, et cetera. Um, he does all the, the, the growing. He takes the loss when they die. You know, we've had chickens shipped to us and 10 or 20% of them come dead to begin with. And right. um, then, then as you try to get them to full size, you're going to lose a couple more along the way. But mm -hmm. well, with this guy, we found that by the time we, you know, get them at 12 weeks, they're a little bit more expensive, but they're hardy and they're ready to go. Right. So you, you introduce them at night to the flock at night. They don't like watching you walk in with a cage, but if you stick them in the coop at night, everybody comes out the next day and they don't even notice there's new chickens there. And Every year we try to add about five or six to our flock, knowing we're going to lose one or two to kind of keep it at that 20, 15 to 20. So, you know, you figure you got about a three-year lane cycle and, you know, you want to get 15 chickens or so lane at any given time. Um, so we just add five or six a year and that, that should keep up with that. We had a high this year. Um, we were getting about 16 eggs a day from our mm -hmm. chickens at one point. Um, it's a little lower now. I need to get out there and put in a... Uh, a heat lamp for the winter that'll help them <laughs> lay it over the winter. Sure. Um, not even just for the temperature, just the artificial light, you know, it'll kind of trick them with these short days. Um, you know, so it's a little slower now, but yeah, we were, we were getting more eggs than we could eat. So of course we were popular with our neighbors and every time we got about eight or nine extra dozen, which was usually within about a week to 10 days, um, take them over to the in-laws. They got a freeze dryer. So now I got a pantry full of freeze dried eggs that you just mix one-to-one -one with water and you make scrambled eggs, omelets, use them in baking and things like that. And yeah. there's still the uh, dark orange yolks, all organic, all fresh. Mm -hmm. um, you know, good, good substitute, you know, uh, for food storage or just for use in the winter. Sure. Yeah. I have a friend who has a, has a, a freeze dryer and they made some of those for me. And then I didn't realize that they weren't already cooked. So I like mixed them up in some water and I started eating them and I'm like, uh, I don't think these are cooked. So, so I had, That's that was, funny. uh, yeah, well, I was camping, so it made it worse. So I was kind of out of my comfort zone and I didn't think it all the way through. So, but yeah, it was interesting. <laughs> you know, that, uh, the freeze dryers are a really cool thing. Um, you know, uh, fortunately, my in-laws have it whenever, you know, we just have food in the fridge that's about to go bad. My wife will go and freeze dry it. She'll mm. freeze dry cream. She'll freeze dry vegetables for putting in the soups, things like that. It's it's amazing. It's And not only that, you know, the kids, they love freeze dried berries. And if you go to your store or go to Trader Joe's or something like that and you see the the price on freeze dried strawberries and raspberries, it's 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 unbelievably high. So yeah. even just buying them at Costco and freeze drying the extras, it, it goes a long way and they love them as snacks. Yeah. Cause Costco has, um, organic strawberries. Yeah. I buy them yep. over there. That's good. So what, uh, <laughs> failure is an option. What's, uh, some of the other 
Yeah, I liked your story about how one of the things that pitfalls everybody has is they start with everything and you started with everything and and that's everybody learns their lesson and then they they even out after a while. Yeah. Um let's talk about the orchard, right? So um mm-hmm. first thing we did is right we took a pasture and we said okay, we're going to plant some trees. Um trees believe it or not are very difficult to plant. Um, first of all, they need a lot of water when they're first planted and they need, um, periodic saturation. They don't need water every day. Right. So they need a good soaking once a week or so. Mm -hmm. Um, we were so busy building fences, putting in our garden, things like that, that we just said, we're just going to plant some trees and see what sticks. Mm -hmm. So they're on the automatic sprinkler, um, depending on the time of year, they would get anywhere from. 30 minutes of water once a day to an hour, twice a day, um, depending on, you know, in the heat of the summer, obviously we water more for the garden. Um, right. and what ended up happening is we had great trees, right? Um, it looks like a forest is starting to grow in one of our pastures. The problem is, is, you know, we got a little bit of fruit the first couple of years on some of them. We haven't really gotten anything much the last five to seven years. Wow. So, yeah. So, so again, we didn't have time to maintain them properly, um, we just figured we'd throw it against the wall and see if it sticks. And that's what happened. So the plan for this year is twofold. Number one, I want to get out this winter and trim the trees. We took a trip um, this summer and we went through Palisade, Colorado, and we toured a peach orchard. They have on their peach trees two or three branches and that's it. Wow. So, you know, they said you're going to get, you know, X number of pounds per peach tree every year. The question is, is do you want them an inch and a half or two inches across, or do you want the big four inch palisade peaches? So, mm. you know, my, my thought there is to do that. Number one is to trim the trees based on the type of tree for maximum growth. Right. Number two, um, my soil is lacking in potassium. Um, we did a, a soil sample analysis on that. So um, I got some high potassium fertilizer. Um, as well as some straight potassium. You know, my plan is while I'm trimming them this winter while they're dormant is to lay the fertilizer down so it's already fertilized for the spring and then do it every spring and fall. Right. And then the third thing um, that we ran into is the watering issue, right? So my goal now is to water less frequently but longer on those trees. Hmm. So fortunately... Um, I have about eight different stations that run on my sprinkler setting and two of them hit the garden. So I can put those on an hour at a time, two nights a week, and and I'll be fine. I can put the rest of the sprinklers on, which cover the pastures and, you know, where the orchard is, you know, I can do that 15, 10 or 15 minutes a day just to keep the grass from turning brown and then go out once a week, get a big water tank. Um, you know, 250 gallons or so and water each of those trees, just turn the spigot on, let it run, give them a good soaky, um, mm-hmm. you know, just keep it in the truck and just, you know, put the hose in it to fill it up, walk away, go to something else for a half hour, come back and then take it out and water all the trees. Um, so that's really, you know, what I want to do there. That's another reason why we move are moving the berries into the back, um, better control over the watering. The berries want a water, a lot of water. So we can, you know, water the berries more frequently uh, than the trees. 
um, but not as frequently as the garden. So it's really about matching the water to what you're trying to grow there. So that's another failure right there was, uh, was trees. If you're going to do trees, do trees. If you're going to do a garden, do a garden. If you're going to try to do both, you got to have a lot of time on your hands because each require a lot of care and maintenance. Yeah. Yeah. That's interesting. So basically you overwatered them and then they're like, Hey, life's good. I don't need to go to, I don't need to, I don't need to uh, lay out some fruit or go to seed. Right. Exactly. Yeah. You got to stress them a little bit so that there's that survival instinct. Hey, Life is not all that great here. We need to make sure we can propagate and, you know, have more trees. But when they're living the good life, you know, like, like people, they get fat and lazy, right? It's the same thing with trees. Sure. They look good. Got great branches, got great leaves, you know, nice little shaded area out there, but no fruit. Yeah. What kind of, what kind of trees do you have? You said peaches, you have peaches. Yeah, we have peaches, we have apricots, we have plums, we have several different variety of apples. Um, mm-hmm. And of course, you got to make sure that you have compatible pollinators. Some are self-pollinating, but some you want to pair up. Right. Um, and you want to make sure they're in close enough proximity to each other. Um, one of the things that I found when it comes to trees is that uh, the guidelines that they give you for distance apart, um, probably too far. Every orchard yeah. that I've gone to, they're planted closer together than what those guidelines are on. So um, don't be afraid to put them a little closer together, get that cross-pollination going, um, and then you'll, you'll get a nice growth out of there. Um, you know, we tried a number of other things. Um, cherries, I mentioned, lost those, replaced them with bush cherries. Those seem to work a little bit better, but again, they're not as good as, you know, eating cherries as your typical Bing cherries or even Rainier cherries or things like that. Sure. Um, Grapes are tough to get out here in Idaho. Um, there's only a few varieties available. It's actually illegal to bring them in and out of Idaho. So mm. you're kind of stuck with what you want. We haven't had good luck with grapes. They grow back every year, but they only grow back about knee high. So we got to figure wow. out a way to preserve them over the winter and keep them going. Find a new spot for them because, you know, we'd love to have a small vineyard, a small fence line of grapes, you know, and that's the thing, right? We don't plant rows and rows of apple trees. We have you know, uh, eight or 10 different types of trees, you know, over five rows, you know, we have a couple of rows of different berries, but we don't have a berry patch. So, you know, we like the diversification both in our garden and our fruit and things like that, um, because it really is meant to be a homestead. It's not a market garden. It's not something that, you know, we're going to sell or make a profit off of, but it's, it's a lifestyle that we choose to live. It's food that we choose to eat. Um, we, when we moved out here, we said to ourselves that our homestead was going to be both our hobby and our gym. Um, the only issue with that is that if uh, if your wife gets pregnant or if you have a medical issue or something like that, you can always put the hobby or the gym on hold, but you can't put the homestead on hold. It's going to grow and eat up keep no matter what. So that's one of the one of the things to keep in mind there as well. We'll, uh, we'll talk about some more failures um, in our garden. So one of the things that um, I came up with, it was based on the concept of a keyhole garden. If you've ever seen a keyhole garden, you can uh, walk into it um, and there's an open area in the center so that you can harvest from both the inside and the outside of the garden. Right. And um, what I wanted to do is I built something similar to that with, um, with wood. These were square boxes. Uh, roughly six by six, you had a slot that you could walk in. And in the middle, I put um, 
a compost bin. The idea being that you feed the compost bin and it would break down and feed, refeed the soil. So the top was wood. The bottom had uh, a wooden frame with chicken wire on it. So the compost bin would break down and, and seep back into the gardening area. Hmm. So the problem I had with that is I put it out in the pasture and I laid wheat fabric underneath. But unless you have the heavy duty, thick wheat fabric, any of the kind that lets in light and water, like you would cover over grass or something like that. Right. Within a year, I had pasture grass coming out of my garden boxes. And, you know, you're talking these are two feet tall around the sides. So it it was just overgrown. So my, my son was out here one summer staying with me. Poor kid. His job that year was to shovel a lot of soil onto the new garden area and take down these mounds because you can take the boxes apart, but then you have these mounds of soil and grass. So uh-huh. um, some of it that wasn't too bad, you know, like I said, ended up in the, the new garden area. A lot of it that had just thick grass growing through it, it just ended up in the pond right along the edge of the pond. So uh-huh. um, it would either either die out, get absorbed back in, or if it grew, hey, great, it's more more, more food for the cows. Yeah, I did a similar thing. I tried to make a, uh, um, I tried to make a a bed like that, and then it just got taken over by weeds and especially by lambs quarters. Yep, yep. Uh, the other thing we tried is the back to Eden gardening method. If you don't know oh, what yeah. that is, the idea is you um, cover your planting area with mulch, mm-hmm. lots of mulch, like in some cases a foot of mulch. Um, and the idea there is that you plant underneath the mulch is a weed barrier. Um, and then, you know, it, it keeps the weeds from springing up, but allows your plants to go. Um, one of our neighbors has had some pretty good success with it, mm-hmm. but, um, you know, it, it's hard to spread. Right. And not all mulch is created equal. Right. So we have a, uh, a lumber yard by us and they give out free mulch. So that means you can go over there and you can shovel it all yourself or you can pay them. Um, it's about 20 bucks for a pickup load. They'll they'll scoop it and load it for you. But then, hmm. of course, you got to unscoop it and load it back when you get to your garden. Um, I ran into a tree company one time and I said, hey, can you guys dump all these tree trimmings, these chopped up tree trimmings uh, on my garden? They're like, sure. So they dumped a bunch of them. And then I had this huge pile that again, you have to figure out a way to spread. So you either have to do it by hand with a rake. You have to have somebody with a tractor. If you don't have a tractor, just a lot of work. So um, after doing that for a couple of years, we've abandoned that because that takes upkeep every year and you're constantly adding mulch, constantly adding mulch. So Mm -hmm. um, eventually where we settled is we just have the best luck growing right out of the ground. Mm. Um. Couple of couple of references there that I can direct you to is um, there's a, a guy out in upstate New York. Um, the name is escaping me, but I'll remember it. You can edit back in later. Um, and uh, he put silage tarps over his garden every year. Um, we've done that. We've gotten a fifty by one hundred foot tarp, um, so we have a five thousand square foot garden in one of our pastures. We've gotten a 40 by 100 foot tarp that we cut up for some of the smaller beds and other auxiliary beds that we have. And it does a great job of breaking everything down over the winter. So um, it breaks down the soil. It's broken down the mulch. The mulch is almost all now broken down into soil. It breaks down the remnants of your old plants. Um, 
And so what I'll do is I'll cut it with the mower every year and chop it up as fine as I can be. But the next spring, it'll just be soil. If you have seeds in there, especially weed seeds, and you get a little moisture in there, like, for example, we covered ours up on Thanksgiving. We had the family up. We had a lot of labor. As you can imagine, it takes a bit of labor to, to move a 50 by 100 foot tarp. We spread out the tarp. There was a little dusting of snow. As it warms up, there's going to be moisture in there. It's going to get those weeds to sprout. But because of the lack of light and lack of water, they're going to die underneath that tarp. Um, We tried a couple of things to hold down that tarp. One was sandbags. Sandbags work great. The problem is, is they're heavy and you have to do something with them the next spring when you take them off. So we had the bright idea. Well, let's just put them around the edge of the garden so we can move them back easy. Well, what happens there is you can't mow or rototill around the edge of your garden if you have sandbags there um so then the grass starts creeping into the edge of your garden um things will grow in your sandbags they'll go right through the bottom right (laughs) at the top i I have i have a sandbag in the back of my truck right now that we picked up on thanksgiving that has a tree growing out of it scott Mm -hmm. it's about two feet tall so Got to be careful in that. And not only that, the sandbags themselves will wear down after a couple of years. And then you end up with rip bags. You end up with broken bags that spill out. You end up with ants in the sandbags. The ants love the sand. So they'll make homes in that. So we finally cleared out all the sandbags. And what we did this year is we did tires. The good thing about tires. tires, yeah, you can call up any tire place in your town. And they're more than happy to have you come pick up their unusable, unsellable tires. Now, obviously, you don't want them so worn out that they got the steel treads, you know, the steel threads coming through. That'll cut your hand and things like that. But um, if you use cinder blocks or large boulders or bricks or things like that to hold that tarp down, even the micro movements from the wind will eventually wear holes in that tarp. Right. That's that's why sandbags were good because they were big, they were flat and the sandbags themselves are smooth. So there wasn't a lot of friction or abrasion with the tarp tires work even better. So for ours, we got about 55. We had 11 rows by five across on the tarp. And, you know, they're the big pickup truck tires. Um, buddy of mine who works at a shop brought them over. He said, Hey, we just don't want them back, but you can have them. Um, you know, they charge you a disposal fee when you, you know, get new tires for your old ones. Right. And they have to, the the shop has to pay to get rid of them. So they're more than happy if you want to come get tires from them. And then the best part about that is they're easy to move because they roll next spring. We'll just roll them, stack them on a couple of pallets, you know, on the side of the garden up against the fence, um, put a tarp over it. So the sprinklers don't rain on it all summer and collect water and mosquitoes and things like that. And then just bring them out next fall. So we'll see how that works. But, Hmm. um, sandbags weren't, you know, we're kind of a failure there now within the garden itself. What we like to do is we base this on the market garden theory. We do uh, 30 inch rows, 18 inch walkway. 30 inch row, 18 inch walkway. So you're talking four feet for a row and a walkway. So we get about 24, 25 different rows going across the 50 foot way in that 100 foot section, depending on how much space the tarp takes up at the end. Um, We can even put in some T posts and run some field wire across it as trellises for things like peas, tomatoes, that sort of thing. That works out well. They're easy to pull out in the fall. We just picked them up in a straight line, put them along the edge of the fence, tied them up to the fence so they don't fall over over the winter. Um, but what we want to do next year is this. We want to get that heavy-duty weed fabric 
we want to put a border along the side so the grass doesn't creep in. Mm-hmm. And in our walkways, we want to do, you know, 18 inches of weed fabric over the walkways. So then we have these nice 30 inch beds um, that have broken down soil that have had compost added to it over the years that have had the wood chips that we talked about that are broken down over the years. So we got some really nice soil on the top of our garden, even though mostly what we have out here is a lot of sand and soil. Um, we're in the part of Idaho where we're at. And then um, um, from the, you can order different size hose, right? So you, you take a roller and you lay out your garden where you're going to plant, depending on you're going three across, four across, five across, whatever. And it marks it for you where you put your starts. And if you keep them in a nice row, you can just walk up and down with these triangular hose and just, you know, you want to do this every couple of days, but if you do it with that nice loose soil, you're going to uproot those weeds before they start to grow. Now, if you neglect it and the weeds take root, you're on your hands and knees pulling them by hand. But otherwise, you should just be able to walk up and down. And the gentleman who does this is at a place called Never Sing Farms in upstate New York. Mm-hmm. Um, and if you see him on YouTube or take a look at it, some of the most beautiful gardens you'll ever see. Wow. That's good. Good tips there. So we'll, we'll, we'll try that out next year and let you know how it works or whether it's not, it's a failure. <laughs> um, <laughs> the, the, the other thing is... Uh, uh, flame weeding works. You know, we have a walk behind flame weeder. It's about 15 inches wide. Um, we'll do that in the pathways before we lay down that lead fabric. Um, we'll even do that on the main beds, um, before we plant them just to Mm -hmm. kind of singe those weeds off the top and things like that. And, um, and hopefully, you know, as, as your crop grows in and they, it fills out, the weeding becomes easier because it blocks out the sun. And if you're, if you've been on it from the start, um, you're constantly uprooting those weeds. It doesn't give them a chance to take hold. And then the, the, the cover itself of the crops helps keep them down. Sure. Wow. That sounds great. Good tips. Other thing that we've decided is no more summer vacations. Um, <laughs> it, 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 at least not extended summer vacations, right? So last year we had to be out of town for, for about a month this year. We took a three week trip back east. Um, I had some extended time off work both years. And um, when we came back, we just could not keep up with the weeds. So uh-huh. um, I'm not saying we're not going to take any time off. We're not going to take a long weekend here and there. But we've decided, you know, October 31st is our date, right? Um, that's when we turn off the sprinklers. That's when we like to have everything done for the winter. I think the next three years, our cows are getting picked up the first week of November. So next year, it's off to the Grand Canyon in November, you know, enjoy some nice 80 degree Arizona weather after the homesteading season is done. When wow. the tarp is on the garden, the cows are off to the butcher, the sprinklers are shut down for the year, um, where it's still nice enough for the chickens to free range. Um, so that's really our plan going forward is we're not taking any extended vacations wow. in the summertime. Um, you're just throwing away your gardening season if you're gone for three or four weeks. That's great. Thank you, John. Fun tradition. Yep. Hey, if you like this episode, leave us a tip on Venmo or Cash App at Thriving the Future. Or join the Patreon, patreon.com slash Thriving the Future. You get early episodes and you get extras. Thank you. Check out Thriver News. It's thriving community news without the noise. It's longer form articles where Perpin and I share how 
to thrive and how to live that abundant life. That's at Thriver News, thriver.news. Check it out. Thank you for listening to Thrive in the Future podcast. If you like what you hear, please click that like or subscribe button in your favorite podcast app. Follow us on Twitter at Thrive in the Future and also go to thriveinthefuture.com.